Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. You have reached the American Wacko Network. Our country isn't great anymore. To skip over this opening announcement, say main menu. Main menu. To hear this menu in Spanish, press 3, and you will be immediately disconnected and your phone will explode. To speak to a white supremacist, press or say 1. To speak to a 9-11 truther, press or say 2. To speak to an Obama birther, press or say 4. To speak to a rabid nativist, press or say 5. For information about the Sovereign Citizens Movement, press or say six. For all other paranoid inquiries, press or... Six. Oh, is that the Sovereign Citizens one? We don't really have anyone manning that line yet. It's so new. Wait, I thought you were a computer system. No, we just make it sound that way. Computerized communication allows the government to control your reproductive system. Don't I know it. Well, the sovereign citizens are the ones who don't have to pay taxes or speeding tickets, and they can shoot representatives of the government. I met some at the Trump rally last... Oh, Mr. Trump, isn't he nice? He's done so much for us. It used to be my family wouldn't have me home for the holidays because I am an anti-Semite. Now they've got Dancing with the Swastikas on TLC. We can thank future Vice President Duggar for that. And Mr. Trump. It used to be you could lose your job just for hating people of color. One racist rant, and you are off to human resources. Hey, I'm getting off work in an hour. Want to get some beers and go to face an Obama statue? You bet I do. The rest of you say or press 7 to listen to the nose. And now he's horrified by the way Ted Cruz has drifted to the left. Colin McEnroe. It just sort of seems that way, actually. You know, it just seems like Ted is so much more moderate uh, than he used to be. But I don't think he's really moved all that much. Well... There is a religious war going on in our country for the soul of America. It is a cultural war as critical to the kind of nation we will one day be as was the Cold War itself. Now, those words were spoken in 1992 by Pat Buchanan in his famous culture war speech at the 1992 Republican National Convention. Buchanan had a laundry list of road signs pointing to a national demise. Radical feminists, environmental extremists, gay rights, women in combat units, abortion on demand, discrimination against religious schools. The speech at the time seemed over the top. Molly Ivins famously said it probably sounded better in the original German. Even in 1992, with many lessons yet to be learned, the bulk of the Republican Party seemed to know it couldn't run a national election on extremist rhetoric and that standing behind Buchanan was a freaky collection of neo-Confederates, anti-government conspiracy theorists, nativist gold standard cranks, and things best left under the rocks of their choice. In a new essay in The New Yorker, Evan Osnos writes that Donald Trump has metaphorically tugged on the great American bedspread so that its lunatic fringe could rise up above the dust bunnies on the floor and Join the rest of us on the mattress. Osnos writes, when Trump leaped into the head of the Republican field, he delivered the appearance of legitimacy to a moral vision once confined to the fevered fringe, elevating fantasies from the message boards and campgrounds to the center stage of American life. In doing so, he pulled America into a current that is coursing through other Western democracies, Britain, France, Spain, Greece, Scandinavia, where xenophobic national parties have emerged since the 2008 economic crisis to besiege middle ground politicians. 
Uh, today on the news, we'll talk about what happens when that big tent opens its flaps to ultra-conservatives, doomsday preppers, white supremacists, and sovereign nation loonies. What happens, in other words, when the side stream merges with the mainstream? That should lead us neatly into a conversation about the heart-wrenching Elon Kurdi photo, which has the potential to grab our collective lapels and get us thinking and feeling about Syrian refugees with a fervor we seem to reserve for slain lions and euthanized bears. As with Vietnam, Abu Ghraib, and Tiananmen Square, we're reminded of the power of the image. But not everybody likes the way it gets used. And lastly, there's no escaping this week without a nod toward deflate gate. I confess I don't have a keen cultural take on that one, but I know one or all of our panelists will. Who are our panelists? Uh, writer and critic Rand Richards Cooper from TheaterWorks, Tanisha Dugan, Dugan, and from Trinity College, uh, Professor Luis Figueroa. So we are going to start with this notion um, from Evan Osnos's much discussed, discussed piece. He was actually on Fresh Air with Terry Gross yesterday about this kind of idea that what we're really seeing here is the legit- legitimization of a whole bunch of people who were at one time delegitimized, who one time stood outside the boundary, the pale that divides reasonable discourse from unreasonable discourse. Of course, everybody draws that line in their own specific place, uh, and some might argue that that line never existed. Uh, Louise, how does it seem to you? I mean, is this uh, a shift? Are these people actually being allowed into the main tent? Uh, yes, what happens is that the the discourse that, that Trump decided to, to grab um, really b- brought these people into a situation where they feel that they are more mainstream than they, w- that they used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things in the Ocean's article that I noticed right away was when one of the white supremacists says that originally they believed they saw uh, Trump as, quote, a Jew lover. But now they see him as someone who is doing a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. And at one of the events that the Osnos attended, uh, people were shout, you know, were saying that Trump, uh, we are all Trump now, and Trump is us. So what what that is gave that opening. Now we can talk about how that opening happened or whatever. But but these these views, um, I would say there's another problem, which is the views that some people uh, espouse openly. Uh, whether it's online or in person, and the views that some people have that they would normally do not voice, but that makes them uh, candidates for being attracted to the kind of speech that the white nationalists have or that Trump is, uh, is, is, is presenting in the discourse today. So, so, Tanisha, I said, you know, everybody draws the line a different way. Uh, I'm wondering, did do, do you feel – I mean one thing that's sort of – one of the kind of banality of evil moments that's in the Evan Osnos piece. At one point he watches I think the debate with a bunch of young, for want of a better word, fascist, right? Uh, one of them's drinking out of a coffee cup with a swastika on it. And they're reacting not so much to the letter of what he says to also, but also to what they hear. You know, and they're, they're basically saying, well, yeah, yeah, he's talking to us. Yeah, he's not really quite saying it but he's saying what we believe. You know, uh, this, this, we should have – European preferences on immigration. He's kind of saying that, but not really. But that raises the question, does this stuff all get communicated all the time, you know, in in a dog whistle way? I think so. And I think we're all guilty of a bit of a tribalism. I'd be lying if I didn't say that the current discourse uh, has pushed me towards a, a sort of separatist thinking in a way that I honestly was surprised by, um, 
experiencing within myself. You mean you're talking about sort of the last year or so? Yeah. Uh, um, in, in black America. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of understand why the landscape is as it is because we're all sort of trying to stake our claim on what America means to us. Um, and Trump is absolutely a part of that discourse that says America is white and America is European and we need to protect that value of America. Um, And my liberal self is like, no, of course not. We're a patchwork of a lot of different things. And then my 33-year-old self says, well, (laughs) perhaps staking my my, my flag in the sand and being clear on um, what culture I represent in the American fabric is equally as important or even more important in pushing the culture and the conversation forward. Yeah, Rand, I'm wondering what you think about this. I, uh, one question that I find myself asking is, I mean, one thing about Trump is that he's not polite. And so there's a whole bunch of things that polite people may actually believe that they don't say. Uh, and he's less polite, so he's saying those things. And and I wonder whether it's, it's that um, or whether it's really that he has – as Osnos is, did you buy Osnos's argument basically that he's creating some space for these people to be part of, uh, to be not shunned the way they they, they probably well, should be? Well, I'd say a couple of things about that. One way to view Trump, and and one thing that's beguiling about Trump for a cultural for cultural criticism is that he's a recurring phenomenon. It's pointed out in the piece. Well. It's like asking American Pharaoh, why does he run? Well, that's what Donald Trump does. He runs. Now, that's always just been a sort of laughable sideshow. But now there's some traction. So one of the questions, interpretive questions, is why is that? Now, it's easy enough to write off Trump as a clown, uh, as the, the apotheosis of, of, uh, the pol- of entertainment as politics, or simply the way some conservative uh, columnists like George Will do as, oh, this is the coarsening of public uh, discourse and the ruination of, of the Republican Party. But this piece by Evan Osnos, which I really recommend to anyone, is terrific because it forces you, when you read it, to make a kind of interpretive choice about the significance of what Trump is doing. Now, we all know there has for a long time been a small fringe population of uh, survivalist, apocalyptic, right-wing, racist Americans. The notion in this piece is that Trump, of all unlikely people, may be building an effective bridge to them. Now, it's pointed out that he only we're only talking about, at most, he has 18 percent right now, and that's probably wildly inflated, of the Republican Party, of Republican people who are going to vote in primaries. The numbers are still kind of low. However, and this is the last thing I'll say, and Colin, your intro to this packed together so many salient themes. When uh, you, you referred to Buchanan's book, the commentator who said it would have read better in the original German. Now, that is a very, very apt. Uh, penetrating comment because really if you just want to write this off as oh clownish figure with a totally fringe uh, element out there that could never never come to power well the template for this obviously um, is uh, is is Germany in the 1930s a laughable clownish candidate written off by the mainstream a bunch of, of, of paranoid and embattled right-wingers with their own sacred text. All these people in Osnos's book had read Buchanan's book, The, the Death of the West. 
There was a figure in 1930s in Germany named Houston Stuart Chamberlain, and he wrote a book called The Structure of the 19th Century. He was a, an English-born German. He was famous in Germany in the 1930s because he presented a racialist, frankly a racist, text of the development of then modern Europe. And he became a famous figure. These views migrated steadily from the far right right to the center, and the clownish figure that everyone had dismissed, whoa, there he was. So if, you're tended, if, you, if you tend, as I do, to dismiss Trump and you're willing to bet a lot of money that he will not head this party's ticket and he will go back to where he came from, nevertheless, you have this little kind of tiny little historical precedent that's distressing. I think that's where I come from in this, too, that the cult of personality and the climate is absolutely perfect for him to slide in in a way that most of us may think, oh, it'll never happen. I actually think he's in the perfect position to not just, you know, fringe folk, but there are some regular old liberal whites that I come across that every now and then express some opinions that do sound an awful close to what he is trying to say. Well, uh, by the way, so, uh, just hold your thought for two seconds as we go along here. If you want to chime in, 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. And you may also tweet at us, at WNPR. Colin, go ahead, Luis. Uh, what I was going to say, uh, to pick up on the comments that you have made uh, from the introductory text from Colin and uh, Ren and Knisha, two things quick. Is that, first of all, I have been for the last, um, well, pretty much like two months, Re- being irritated at the number of commentators in the mainstream press, uh, whether blogs in Slate or Salon or Washington Post or whatever, that have been dismissive of the Trump phenomenon. Oh, this is going to fizzle, you know, by, before the end of the summer, and this, and there's some people in Connecticut and so on. And, and yet we're not noticing what was happening. Because they seem to be sort of like uh, wishful thinking, wishing him away instead of paying attention to what was really happening. I think that not uh, surprisingly, the group that seemed to be paying more attention carefully to what was going on were Latinos Mm. because of the way he started. And so on social media, the discussions about Trump and trying to analyze the Trump phenomenon happen among you know, Latino scholars, activists, other people on Facebook, Twitter, and so on, far more deeply earlier than with the mainstream press. And, and so I, I just want to say we have to take it seriously for another reason. Following up on what Tanisha's last comment, um, you know, I was not that old, I mean, not that young, really, sorry, to say that when Reagan emerged in the 1960s, and, you know, when, even when he challenged Ford in 1976, a lot of people thought that Reagan was an extremist, that he was, like, very close to the John Birch Society or something like that. Um, and, and I remember people say, oh, Reagan is never going to win, and, you know, it's never going to win. Boom. And then we had the 1980s and his re-election in 1984 and so on. So there's a lot of of things that happens that people say to themselves or in private polite company or so on that that they would not say publicly. And that's where Trump is coming in. And and I think that uh, the the so-called post-racial idea that once Obama was elected is post-racial America is actually the backlash to this. Absolutely. If you, if you, when you read Osno's piece, you really have to decide what you think of the America that Trump is appealing to. And if you believe that there is a sort of stable core of like centrist views that include civility, 
basic sort of liberal civic values, then you think, you know what, we're just going to ride this one out and he's going to be a footnote. But if you think of, of the states right now at this moment as a sort of racial and social powder keg that is just waiting for the right person to be the fuse, then you have a different view. Now, I, I will confess I tend toward the former. However, I note that uh, in this piece or maybe in the Edsel piece that you gave us, Currently, 52% of white Americans, not Republicans, not right wing, all white Americans, believe that prejudice, racial prejudice against white people exactly. is as big a problem in America right now as racial prejudice is against African Americans. That's very unsettling. You beat me to it because that is exactly where we are. And that's completely different than the 1960s. And I think oftentimes us liberals look at the current situation. We're like, oh, there's action happening. There's activity. People are starting to speak their voices about this. But really, it's it's they're speaking their voice based on, I go back to the same point, a tribalism. They are coming from a place of what about me? It's the affirmative action Thing where you go, oh, but you shouldn't have that job just because you're black. We're way, to say, post-racial. We're way past that point. <laughs> and there have been elements of ugliness, like in the whole thing with Ramos um, from uh, Univision. When he, when he kicked him out of the room. Yeah. You know, um, you're fired. Yeah, but, no, but he also, you know, there was, I, I know you have to be hesitant about these kinds of comparisons, but I... And I normally am. But I would say there was some weird, vague, faint tinge, tinge of something brown shirt-like. Yes. Well, in, there's, there's a, a, a little point in the piece. I was wondering whether you noticed it, you in particular, Rand, noticed that there was even more brown shirt-like. Uh, there's a, a moment in the piece where um, – uh, I think it's in Boston. I can't remember where, though. A couple of Trump fo- followers yes, beat, beat up a, a Mexican mm-hmm. homeless man. Mm-hmm. Um, and Trump is asked about it. And his initial response is, well, that's not, I, I, that's not great. But, you know, he goes, but then he says, but my followers are passionate. They have a kind <laughs> of passion. And so and he begins to talk more elaborately about how that's the kind of passion they have. And then two days later, after I think getting you know really called on it a little bit, that he had not really denounced violence on his behalf by these two young followers, he comes out a little bit more definitely against it. To me, that was the brown shirt moment. It was yes. like, wow. Yes, that and also the Ramos uh, incident, he keeps shouting at him, shut up, shut up, shut up. Now, the way we read that among Latinos in this country, a lot of us, and I know other people as well in other groups, was we have no right to talk in this country. We have no right to question people like him. We have no no voice, no possibility of a voice, and and that is precisely one of the things that that I, that I think he taps into is his desire to return. I would say, in, in you know, like Andrew Sullivan said a few days ago, that that he represents a, a, an Elish, a return to an Elysian nineteenth century version of America. I would say a, a version of America of seventeen ninety before there was an even abolitionist movement in this country, or, or slavery was even eradicated throughout all of New England or the North. That's the kind of vision that, that, that is represented here. One of the people that is quoted in the Austin speech says, um, in the context of the, of the removal of the Confederate flag and, and monuments and so on, he said, well, now they're going to come for the monuments, and this is cultural yes. genocide. Yes. What they're doing is cultural genocide, and you know that after cultural genocide will come physical genocide. Now, I always tell my students um, that back in the day of slavery and throughout the Americas, a lot of people opposed 
the abolitionist movement, the idea of slave emancipation, on the grounds that, oh, if we free the slaves, when the slaves are free, they're going to do to us, white people, they were saying this, uh, what we've been doing to them. And it's just like a Freudian projection. So in the article, this is part of what I saw was this fear that once non-Hispanic whites become a minority in this country, uh, you know, African-Americans and Asians and Latinos are going to unite to kind of like enslave white people in this country. And that's, I think, the paranoia that is happening as well. It's kind of like a Freudian psychological drama happening deep in the consciousness of people. You know, and I still, I do for one, I, I went on to some of the websites of like this, this Southern, what was the name of that organization? With the Southern Poverty Law Center. Yeah. That's, so, a, that's who tracks all No, 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 no. The right wing. Southern League. Like the Southern League. The Southern League. Southern League. That one's an independent republic. So you go into these websites, and, and to me, and I'm, I'm going to present the most optimistic interpretation, to me, there's still a very big gap between what goes on and what you could call sort of the right wing of mainstream politics and the der Sturmer, the Stormer crowd. That, that, that if you go onto their websites, the things that are taken there as, as absolutely not only acceptable but just assumed truth are still so far out there that I think there's still a very substantial gap. However, this piece suggests that, that it's becoming more porous. And there are some things that this piece mentions in passing, like the title of, of Ann Coulter's mm-hmm. most recent okay. book. Now, Ann Coulter, you'd have to say, is, is sort of a mainstream product. I mean, she's a right-winger, but she's not a der Sturmer. No. But her, her new book is Adios America, the left's plan to turn our country into a third-world hellhole. Now, now, of course, you know, there's laughable hucksterism to this, but that's mentioned in passing in the piece. And increasingly, sounds and concepts like that are sort of positioned right there in the middle of the stream we're all swimming around in. She's campaigning for Trump now. Right. Uh, I think I think one of the other differences that Osnes gets at, which I hadn't really thought about, although it's been ringing in my ears a little bit over the last seven days, is that um, the Trump rhetoric that uh, we don't have victories anymore. Uh, and he says this in various ways. And this is really different from Buchanan. If you go back to Buchanan, Buchanan's whole point was there's a fight. There's a fight that we can win. There's a, but there's a fight right now for the soul of our nation, for the morality of our nation. There are people – we have it, but people are trying to take it away from us, right? That's sort of the, the basic Buchanan argument. And Trump's declinism is, is at a much lower level, right? He's basically saying, oh, no, it's gone. We, it has been taken away from us. We have to get it back. And to me, that's a much more desperate-sounding rhetoric and, and one that I think can move people – people of a certain mindset to, uh, you know, to, to more desperate acts. And I don't know if I've ever heard anybody run on such a low level of declinism. I'm trying to think of a candidate ever did that before. Yeah, Probably not, but I think it all mirrors the script of reality television, which is where he comes from and why he's able to have that conversation or lack of with Ramos. And it feels very much like a show of The Apprentice. It is very much the end of The Apprentice. You're fired. Goodbye. And move on. That is how which he... Which is a really bizarre dimension to all of this, right? I right. mean, I mean... But that is how the dimension in which that? he it's exists. Like, does that mean that we're all who are consuming this? living in some bizarre twilight world between the fake and the real? Or is it functionally a way for him to sort of get away with things because he can do it with this sort of showman smile and sort of the vulgarian entertainer that allows him actually to put things on the table that someone else wouldn't? I, I, you know, I find, Tanisha, what you just said is, is, is a sort of under-attended to and crucial element of this. Like the whole bizarre 
um, showmanship, reality TV aspect but, but of it. I don't forget, know what to make of that. But let's not forget here, too, that the, 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 the largest audience watching any news channel in this country watches a channel that is fake news for the most part. Right, Fox. It's you mean the Daily Show? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the way Fox interprets things, you know, I like actually to listen to Rush Limbo, and I like to to sometimes, uh, what is the other name, the other woman, uh, Laura Ingram. I try to catch up that too on Fox to sort of keep track of what's going on. That That is mainstream news media for a lot of people. And that's and, why the doomsday and the sort of we need, we're not winning yes. narrative Yes. take shape where it, where, it, where it holds. I think, you know, that you guys have hit on a really important part about this. You know, I mean, if you want to win, if you want to win a, a, a battle in American politics, first of all, you've got to get good at whatever the dominant medium is. And Trump is very good at television. He's been doing television for a really long time. He knows how to do it, and he enjoys that part of it. He enjoys being famous. He enjoys a, a, a lot of attention. And, and I mean, even in Osnos' piece, piece, there's a, a part where, uh, you know, he recalls that Trump attacked Mitt Romney uh, for doing and saying a lot of the things that he's doing right now. He said, he said, you're losing the Mexicans, you're losing the Asians, you're losing all these minorities for the Republican Party. So, you know, I don't know that these are beliefs that Trump has that are really bred in the bone. Right. It's more as though he he enjoys attention and he is now, I said this earlier this week, that he's he's now become this sort of all-purpose cauldron of rage into which anybody can dump the can duck project, you know, yeah. they can dump their own cup of boiling bile into it just to sort of and he's just there for it and uh-huh. there's a fair amount of winking that goes like when he took this pledge that he would so he did this whole riff on the pledge of allegiance he was practically laughing yeah. and 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 not infrequently he's up there just sort of as you say Colin enjoying himself winking it makes him an unlikely tribune for the sort of hateful causes yeah. that Osno summons in this piece before a run of time I just want to also suggest to, to you guys and also the audience that there is a sexual component to the Trump phenomenon. Um, because the, 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 not only the way he tries to project a certain kind of virility, a uh, certain cowboy mentality, that I'm going to go and I'm going to negotiate with the Chinese and this and, in a very macho style, but also the overt side, which is the way he condemns Jeb Bush or Scott Walker, or Marco Rubio, and others as they don't have stamina, they are not virile They're not enough, manly. they are not manly enough. And, they, they, you know, especially with Jeff Bush, the way he's doing it is amazing to, to destroy their sense of manliness that, that we need a macho man. He's in the order. low energy candidate. Exactly. Might as well call them the low T candidate. Actually, this is a problem for the Bush family. I mean, if you remember in 88, uh, or it may have been 92, there was a lot of, there was the wimp factor about George H.W. Bush. This is a guy who, you know, had been a fighter pilot or a bomber pilot in World War. I mean, he clearly was, he's a lot of things, but he wasn't a wimp, but somehow or other. Great yeah, athlete. Yeah, all this stuff. Anyway, we do have to take a pause here. We'll come back. We'll shift gears. Stay with us after this. A hundred hairs of golden hue He'll know exactly what to do Donald Trump for president That's who my vote's going to So join hands with me What a world it could be With Donald Trump 
Welcome back to the news. With us, Rand Richards Cooper, Tanisha Dugan, and Luis Figueroa. Uh, we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about something else in the media, but something with kind of a, a, a not forced connection, and that is the Syrian refugee crisis and the way in which this one single photo has maybe the potential to galvanize sentiment here in America in a way that uh, it hasn't been so far, uh, a way of sort of getting people to pay attention. Uh, you'd think uh, with the magnitude of the crisis, we'd be paying attention already, but I don't think we were. But somehow or other, well, not it's no mystery why the picture of Elan Kurdi, the three-year-old boy whose body was washed ashore on a beach in Turkey, uh, just the, the, the photographs of that tiny body there on the beach uh, are absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, but they're also placeholders for uh, just myriad tragedies, many of them involving other children who just didn't happen to get photographed in that kind of a position. Um, so we're going to spend a few, few minutes anyway talking about the power of image in situations like that uh, and, and what it does. And there are people who feel like, well, maybe one of the things that Elon Kurdi deserves is not to be manipulated that way, not to be Instagrammed and, you know, and, and, and altered and tweeted and maybe death, the death of a little boy is too important to be tweeted around. Uh, there are other people who believe, as I was just suggesting, this is the only way you get people to pay attention. So, Rand, I'll start with you. Any uh, borders being crossed here, boundaries being crossed here uh, with a picture like this one? I, I find this a really complicated issue um, and, and absolutist uh, – not just this particular picture, but the issue of, of all disturbing pictures and what should be um, included in newspapers, on the news, what, what shouldn't be. I mean, lines are drawn. They're drawn haphazardly. They're drawn by, differently by different institutions. They're drawn differently culturally. But there are always images, ultimately, that we deem, we end up deeming you know, inappropriate. And the relationship of that to what constitutes the news then to what influences politics and real things that are done in the world is incredibly complicated. Now, people who say this kind of photo needs to be shown have their own sort of set of, 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 of iconic photos, the, na- the girl running in the street burned by napalm in Vietnam, the uh, execution in the street by, uh, by, of, a, of a Viet Cong, suspected Viet Cong sympathizer. These are photos that you can make the argument galvanized political action proved to be the sort of crucial tipping point that changed the politics of a fraught situation. So there's a strong argument to be made for that. I'm interested in the arguments that you sent us on the other side that suggest that there's a kind of A, trivialization of this, that people are allowed to kind of get off by feeling, uh, oh, how horrible this is, and then they're allowed to do nothing, that that maybe even constitutes a kind of privilege. I'm open to those arguments, but I, I really have some reservations about them because of the history that I've described. And, Denisha, it seems like it's kind of a double-edged thing. You were in here uh, for the news uh, one day. We were talking about uh, Cedric the Lion, you know, and you don't want this kid to be – and you at the time were sort of saying, what about people? What about bad things that happen to people? Um, and uh, so you don't want this little boy to become the next Cedric the Lion – but in a way, maybe you do want him to become the next Cedric the Lion. Yeah, I'm a storyteller. Oh, I sucks, traffic sucks. in the manipulation of people's emotions. And so I actually don't find it flip if it pops up in my Instagram feed or my Twitter, which I rarely check. But And I guess it comes from that same place of if you see it, it might incite in you the need or the want to take action. And that by not seeing it, you can pretend as if you don't know or not know 
which I think is the other side of this, that we now communicate with each other via pictures. I mean, Instagram is probably the most widely used social media. That is the way we tell stories these days. Um, do I want it to become like Cedric the Lion? Maybe if the emotions that it elicits is the same that it elicited for Cedric the Lion. I'm being informed that it was Cecil. I forgot. Oh, Cecil, Cedric, Cecil, right. My, my Cedric fault. the Entertainer, yeah. Cecil <laughs> the Lion. I'm sorry. Um, so, so that's where I land on it. I land on let's share the images in the hopes that it affects change. I mean, you know, Luis, I find myself despairing of us as a human race that, I mean, there were little kids in the back of that truck. There were 77 refugees uh, dead in the back of this truck. Some of them were little kids. But we can't think about them abstractly. Somehow or other, we have to see a little boy dead on the beach before we understand it. Yes, and I'll give you an example in the other direction, right? Um, During the Iraq war, the United States bombing campaign, claimed a lot of victims that were not combatants. They were civilians, enormous quantities. Um, And yet, American media, in general, did not show much of what was happening, of the strewn dead bodies on the streets of children, uh, blown up faces, uh, maimed children. Just keep it on the children. you had to go to Al Jazeera, you had to go to some European media outlets in order to see those images of the American bombing campaign on civilians in Iraq that were not shown by mainstream media in this country. Uh, more recently, the conflicts in Gaza, the bombing in Gaza, lots of images that were circulating all over the web, the web by all kinds of legitimate media outlets that were not shown in American uh, mainstream media. So in those cases, is that the fact that those images were not shown, something that contributed uh, to the way people interpreted the war early on, that it took so long for a certain opposition to the war to develop. There was a photo in 2003 of an Iraqi boy who left both of his arms and I think most of his family uh, to an American bomb. And it really did in some of the ways that you're talking about. And sometimes all it takes is one. We're going to go to a call here in just a second. But I also, I mean, there is kind of a an understanding we have that he who controls the photos can control some of the narrative. So if you'll remember, another thing that was happening back in 2003 was that the Bush administration was not letting photo, uh, photographers caskets. come to, to the Dover Air Force Base. You can't take pictures of the caskets because that makes it too real. So, I mean, there is that kind of sense anyway. If you control the photos, you can kind of control some of the narrative. Here's a call from Ellen in Newington who's been patiently waiting to talk about this. Hi, Ellen. Hi, Colin. How are you? Good. Good. Thanks for having me. So what's on your mind? Yeah. Uh, well, my name's Ellen Ballard, and I am the executive director of an organization called Road to Mossrock. We work with Syrian refugees in Jordan. And I actually just returned last week uh, from my latest trip to Jordan. So um, I guess my uh, perspective on this is, you know, certainly we can kind of debate all day whether or not this uh, image should or should not be shown. Um, but I think the fact of the matter is that it has been shown. And so... Now, how do we respond? Uh, you know, um, okay, does this image affect change? Can it compel us to impact change? Um, sure, it can. But, you know, let's talk a little bit about, about how do we impact that change, um, you know, and how do we do these images justice once they are shown? Um, and certainly yeah. the, the, the yeah. number of Syrian refugees that the United States is prepared to talk about taking right now is this tiny, tiny number, right? It's, it's tiny, less than, yeah. than 2,000, right? Less than 2,000. In, in almost five years, we've taken in just over 1,500. 
So yeah, it's it's pretty low. And, um, and that, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Well, I feel as though. Um, you know, Louise, that kind of circles us back to the conversation we were having before, because this is all a conversation uh, that's going on in Europe. It's a conversation uh, that's going on uh, in the U.S. about refugees and particularly refugees who aren't, quote unquote, European, <laughs> as they say, you know, that 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 we it is it's actually politically unfashionable right now to care about people like this. Yes. In the first few years after World War Two, the United States uh, resettled approximately 650,000 650, uh, European uh, refugees from World War II within the span of like less than a decade. Um, meanwhile, we look at what's happened since the, the Congress approved uh, a Refugee Act in 1980, and I posted on Facebook today just the chart uh, that I got from the uh, Migration Policy Institute's analysis, and it is an incredible drop in the number of refugees admitted to this country through the 80s, through the 90s, and then since then even less. Uh, whereas during the Cold War, there were laws for the resettlement of Hungarians after the Russian invasion or Cubans after Castro came to power. In the last decades, it's been very small. In fact, the numbers that I found for like 2010, 2011, 2012 is that the largest number of people admitted as refugees into this country were from Burma. Mm -hmm. Right, uh, the, the largest number of people getting uh, uh, political asylum were from other countries. They were they had nothing to do with the Syrian uh, war uh, that has claimed about 11 million displaced people. Um, uh, you know, I think one interesting uh, contrast is the phenomenon that happened in Iceland, a country much smaller, where there was a big storm because the government said they were going to uh, admit 50, and all of a sudden people used social media to say, no, we should admit more. Uh, but what about this country? So enormous, so many resources, and it's not responding to this. Well, it goes I, back I, to that earlier yeah. question we had in the last segment about what is the America that we believe in? What is the America that we stand for? I mean, we are a country of quote-unquote immigrants. Ellis Island is sort of our biggest success story. Um, we don't have that same kind of way of accepting immigrants into the country. We just don't any longer. Hartford is one of the is, is the main city in Connecticut to accept most refugees. And I've worked with a number of organizations that do that. And they say all the time, like the problem isn't is is both um, diplomacy, but it's also local. It's the local community's willingness to accept these bodies into their landscape. I do want to say um that if Donald Trump is elected president uh, and uh, Joe Scarborough is elected governor of Connecticut, I will become a refugee. So <laughs> I want to know. I, wa I want to go to <laughs> Norway or someplace like that. Hey, Ellen, really quickly, because uh, people uh, do want to know what they can do, how they can help. Uh, and some of us may want to bring it up at our churches uh, on Sunday. Uh, say that again the name of your organization. How could somebody find you guys? Yeah, uh, they can find us online at roadtomothrock.org. You want to spell that last word? Yeah, absolutely. It's M-A-F-R-A-Q. Okay. Uh, and we're actually having an event next Saturday to raise money for schools for Syrian refugees in Jordan. 
uh, it's at the Thomas Cooker Brewery in Bloomfield for just $25. Every single penny of that will go to our schools. That's so great. people can come on out and join us. Obviously, this is a subject for a longer show and a longer discussion. Uh, it's going to be something that calls to us morally. But we don't want to send you into Liberty Weekend with nothing but shadows and heaviness on your heart. Although maybe this does, too. I don't know. It, it could be every bit as depressing. Uh, but there's just no way in the world that we, we can uh, end this week without the fa- mentioning the fact that, uh, at least in court for the time being, Deflategate has kind of a resolution. And I wasn't even going to bring it up because I sort of, I'm sort of with Rand on this that I'm just deflate gated out. Uh, on the other hand, just the minute the news uh, came across, we are all always kind of emailing for the two or three days before the show. Uh, Tanisha immediately emailed uh, something to the effect that she wasn't particularly thrilled about this. And I thought, well, if Tanisha Dugan has that strong an opinion <laughs> on it, we should at least mention it. So why aren't you particularly thrilled about it? Well, I just, I, I guess I chuckled and then recoiled at the judge's response that uh, since he didn't know about his punishment, he should not be punished. And I just thought that was quite hilarious as a mom of a one-year-old. Um, <laughs> so he has no sense of the punishment that I might give him for the next 18 years. He should never be punished. And so that that was my um, sort of icky feeling about the whole thing because it sets up an idea of uh, privilege that my child nor I will ever be afforded. Although, Luis, reading the judge's decision, um, it, it does seem as though it's a closely drawn decision. And one of the things he's basically talking about is, you know, in the world of labor law, you have to have a set of practices. You have to have a set of rules and then you have to follow your own rules. And so that's his question. Do you have a set of rules about this? Do you have rules about what happens when somebody is, I think he says, generally aware of <laughs> some, general awareness? Of do you have, a, gen- do you have yeah. a general awareness of wrongdoing policy? Uh, have you followed it in the past uh, and are you following it now? And when you look at it that narrowly, you know, he may be kind of on target, if that's the right way to look at it. Yes, I mean, that's the paradoxical situation for me, I will admit, is that from a sports fan person, I'm horrified at this decision. I I, I always compare it to uh, track and field, where, you know, you can win the gold medal, but if they find that you, you know, doping, so that you have to return it. So if if it was up to me, I would forfeit the the AFC Championship, and I would forfeit the Super Bowl from New England, but I'm, I'm in New England, I should say that. From a, however, from someone who cares a lot about labor relations, about labor law, um, I have a different take on it because there's a lot of abuse of employees, um, how employers uh, skirt uh, contracts, not only individual contracts, but collective agreement contracts. And this is a case of a collective agreement contract and how a collective agreement contract has been interpreted, uh, the procedures that the, the NFL has followed uh, and, and, and not properly followed. So from that standpoint, um, I, I tend to sympathize with Brady uh, uh, because that, that's something that I care about. That's something that worries me because we see abuses by employers constantly on a daily basis, and especially now where the unions are so, so weak. So, Rand, you get the last word. Is there anything you're generally aware of that you'd like to tell us about right now? Well, I, I've responded to the ongoing life of Deflategate with, with weariness um, and disbelief and denial. And the denial has to do with – look, the NFL has a lot on its plate. And I identify sort of appropriate entry points where, where it will intersect with law and jurisprudence. For instance – in the enormous shadow of, uh, of dementia and, and, and damage and all of the legal sediments that attach to that, the issue of sexual violence and so on. These are, these are sort of, to me, legitimate areas where the sport must necessarily intersect with law. 
that there would be a judicial ruling following months of action about whether a football was underinflated or not in games in which were already so lopsided that no under or overinflation football could conceivably have mattered. Uh, that's I, I just have built this wall up, and I, I, I just have sort of refused to pay any attention. Your memory is serving you wrong for that for that uh, Super Bowl game, but that's okay. All right, no, she's <laughs> talking about the forty-seven to five no, game no, in which those balls were used. Yeah. Right, um, right. So anyway, yeah, we have to stop here. I will quickly say that some of this seems to be directed at Roger Goodell, who uh, is, I mean, some of this is all about telling Roger Goodell that you are not some kind of Vatican City-type sovereign state uh, that can do anything it wants to do. Uh, so it may have been a little bit more of a slapping and down. And there's such glee in those comments. Yes, there is. I, I guess I can appreciate that. Yeah, all right. We have to stop, so we'll have time to endorse. We'll be back. The next day it may not. I want to be very familiar with the equipment that I'm using. This is in places. No one's dying, but this is a very important thing because to me those balls are perfect. I can speak for myself. I don't want anyone. You know who else needs to be policed a lot more? The guys who make balloon animals at birthday parties. It's a lot easier to make a giraffe with an underinflated balloon, I'm just saying. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kyone Wolf, with help from Katie Talarski and Lydia Brown. Our interns are Sarah Flaherty and Amanda Gallagher. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jim Plunkett. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff pumping up a pastry shell, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Tuesday, meet Christopher Shin, a brilliant playwright who grew up in Wethersfield hating this one guy on the radio. And now, back to Colin. It is true. Uh, and anyway, Christopher Chen, whose uh, new play is debuting at the Harper Stage Company, uh, will be with me, me for an hour. It's going to be, I'll tell you, it is going to be, it's potentially a show unlike any show I've ever done. And I don't <laughs> say that lightly. Anyway, uh, time for endorsements. I'd like to point out that none of the people in the room here laughed at the balloon animal joke, which I actually thought was funny. But anyway, um, you can't beg for those laughs, though. So, Luis, what have you got? What are you going to? I got two two films that two films that I saw in New York uh, recently. Uh, one is the documentary film "Best of Enemies" or "Best Enemies" uh, of the debates between uh, William Buckley Jr. and Gore Vidal during the Democratic and Republican conventions in 1968, uh, Base of Enemies, there are two showings left uh, at Real Hardways, tomorrow Saturday at 1.20 p.m. and again Sunday at 1.20 p.m. Uh, hopefully there will be other opportunities for you to see this. I strongly recommend it, Base of Enemies. The other film is a German film, uh, Phoenix, um, that it's about um, it, it's one of the, the most creative films about the Holocaust that I have seen in quite a long time. Uh, the title of the film is Phoenix. Um, I hope it will be playing here in, in Connecticut soon. I saw in New York City. If you are near New York or you're going to New York uh, uh, soon, please uh, consider watching it. It's one of the best uh, Holocaust films I've seen in a very long time. Denise Dugan, what have you got? Well, I got to go back and endorse Christian on your show on Tuesday because he's an Academy graduate, a Greater Hartford Academy of the Arts graduate. And so I want to endorse at the beginning of the school year that school. Uh, they're pretty incredible and clearly uh, bring out some pretty incredible artists. Um, also, September 12th, next Saturday, is a day of partying in the Greater Hartford area. 
There's a day party for Heartbeat Ensemble. It's a Downton Abbey meets Scarborough 11 theme. Uh, so if you want to get to know the Scarborough 11 folk uh, and support Heartbeat, I recommend you go to Heartbeat's website uh, to purchase tickets for that fundraiser. And then in the evening, my new home, Theater Works, is celebrating, kicking off their 30th season with a house party. Uh, you can go to our website, theaterworkshartford.org, uh, and find out about that. But party with me all day long. Bloody Mary's in the morning and martinis at night. Served by Carson on Scarborough Street. All right. So, uh, <laughs> Rand, what have you got? From the shameless self-promotion department, for the past two months, I've been writing a two to three times a week blog for the magazine that I work for, Commonweal. I write about books, movies, politics, uh, parenting, a whole bunch of topics. So go to Commonweal, C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can find my blog there. Now, second thing, on a, on a different uh, order of literary uh, accomplishment, I've been reading some of David Foster Wallace mm-hmm. because I watched the movie about him, and I, I've gone browsing through his work. And I'm going to recommend, for those people who haven't read Wallace or for those who love him, one article. And it's an article that appeared in Gourmet Magazine, and it's called Consider the, the Lobster. lobster. <laughs> and it is nominally a piece in a sort of standard travel and tourism mode that becomes something t- Totally different. It's the only piece ever published in Gourmet with 2,000 words of footnotes. And Wallace fans will appreciate that. So go online and easy to find. Consider the Lobster. That's a great introduction to David Foster Wallace. Uh, One more movie, Meru, uh, which is playing at Real Artways right now. An amazing movie I saw in Great Barrington earlier this year. Uh, It is about the climbing of something called the Shark's Fin, uh, this kind of unassailable mountain by this amazing team that goes through these incredible setbacks. It's really about the mentality of these people who want to do this kind of thing. Um, And then the other thing that I think I would endorse Although on a kind of in a muted kind of way, um, I will endorse um, if you're wondering whether or not to go back and if you didn't see it in the first run, whether to watch uh, on demand or in some other way, show me a hero. This is David Simon, the guy who created The Wire. In my opinion, the greatest thing that's ever been on television, by far the greatest thing that's ever been on television is The Wire. Um, There's just no way he was going to come up to that level uh, with Show Me a Hero. And it's about a housing battle, a housing battle in Yonkers, a real actual historic housing battle in the 1990s in Yonkers. And, and, and that's what it's about. Um, and, and as such, it doesn't really quite pack the punch of The Wire. But there are amazing performances. And as was the case with The Wire, you are introduced in some cases to some fabulously talented young actors or maybe not so young act- actors of color. Most of us saw Idris Elba for the first time uh, on The Wire. There are, you know, amazing perform- performances there. And Catherine Keener also gives just such an un-Catherine Keenery performance that it's worth it on that basis. So it's not as great as The Wire, but you might want to think about this. And it plays into a lot of the Trumpy things we were talking about at the beginning of the show, too. Oh, really? They got to Trump, too? That's it. I'm moving to another country. Adios.